0: This is Eric Wall, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidburkuscom slash podcast. Podcast. click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidburkiscom slash podcast or text radio free, all one word to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do?
0: Hey, my name is Eric Wall. I'm a graffiti artist, I'm an author, and I'm a thought leader on the corporate lecture circuit.
1: Now, those are it's sort of like one of these things is not like the other, right? Because you started with, I'm a graffiti artist, right? Which I think when most people think of, they either think of like the punk kids spray painting on streetcars, or they think of like Banksy. Um, But what I love is you occupy this amazing thing where you could kind of take the lessons from both Banksy and the punks but also apply them to anybody that's really trying to make an impact in the world.
0: You know, it was very intentional from a branding standpoint. When I first started exploring art, and this was at the age of of 30, so I'm a a late bloomer into this artistic community, but as I started telling people that I am an artist – uh the response I would get back is, oh yeah, my grandmother's an artist. Or, you know, my uh my sister's an artist. She paints rainbows and landscapes, and and I just realized, man, that that's there's a broad term for what artist is. And the art that I was most drawn to early on were the Banksys, were the street artists, were the Mad Steves, were the Cobras, were this really thought-provoking, uh almost bordering on anarchistic art but that I saw it as being a form of communication. So I very intentionally made that alarming brand choice of being a graffiti artist. Even though I did do sculpture, writing, photography, painting, uh, I kind of self-proclaimed graffiti artist because that was what interested me the most. And it was the most sticky. The fact that I was a graffiti artist who was on the corporate lecture circuit talking to Fortune 500 companies about innovation and creativity. So that was a very intentional uh, branding choice to call myself a graffiti artist. But I'm actually much larger than that. It is art in general. But one of the, the things that I've learned through this whole process is that art is not about creating a product, but rather art is about creating thinking. And so whether that thinking is complex Problem solving, whether it is figuring out supply chain distribution opportunities, uh, anticipating emerging trends in future markets, or painting a self-portrait, it's that process of thinking that is all the same that is what I use and share from from the platform and from my writing.
1: Well, and I think that's so amazing too, because you know when we talk about the the at least in a corporate setting, when we talk about the flip side of creativity or the flip side of art. We're, we use the i word. We use innovation, which is funny to me because in my in my view, a lot of times what blocks innovation is that lack of thinking, right? So so art is about creating something that provokes someone to thought. In a, attempts at innovating, whether it be a product, service, or just a pr- procedure or process or something like that, it also provokes thought, and that's sometimes its downfall. It.
0: It very much is. And you know, one of the reasons I was led to you is I saw, as I've been writing my book, The Spark and the Grind, I was led to this book called The Myths of Creativity. And (laughs) through what you were debunking, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And so much of our Uh, Kind of academic perception of what creativity is largely has been based around myths. You are either born with or without creativity. And what I have experienced is that. Creativity has basically been deprogrammed out of us through our academic institutions, through our best practices, through our organizational learning, through our even Lean Six programs that are all so valued. But when we hold those and deify those as absolutes, we lose so much of our creative potential. We get this tunnel vision focused on one specific point out in time, which given the amazingly rapid changes that are taking place around us, it's no longer relevant. You can't approach this as a tactic or a strategy or a best practice. You've got to be agile. You've got to have mental dexterity. You have to be able to navigate ambiguity, and that's where the arts are one of those almost training grounds or practice grounds for being able to look at a blank canvas and not be intimidated. To be able to step forward and to start creating even if you don't yet know what the end product is going to look like but to step forward Into uncertainty and ambiguity and do it with confidence
1: Uh, So you are totally speaking my language, especially as long-term listeners will will know I I want to explore that a little bit more first though You said something really interesting right as we kicked in which is that you didn't uh, Can we use the word decide or settle on or pursue? Being an artist until your 30s, so I'm I'm sensing that you're speaking not so much out of your uh, lifelong convictions, but actually out of things you realized when, in your thirties, you made that flip. Can I make an assumption about your career in your twenties that you just kept going with this idea that uh, a lot of it is is squelched out of you by the academic systems and the employment systems that we have?
0: You know, I was I was a model student. I uh, was trained. Uh, to get good grades so that I could get a good job so that I could make lots of money and then build security and then retire and then be happy. And that all was just my entire operating system and that all worked very well. It ended up being at around the age of 30. I had a uh, Uh, My wife and I kind of called it an early midlife crisis. The the dot-com bomb blindsided me, as it did so many other people, and I was completely ill-equipped to deal with such a significant setback. And it wasn't, you know what, Uh, now I'm going to be an artist. It was through tremendous suffering and hardship and really a loss of identity and ego, because I'd lost all of my financial security. I'd lost my job. I'd lost... Everything by which I had identified around, and uh, it was mercifully through exploring and spending time with some artists who who cared about me who understood that I was suffering that I started spending time with them and really became fascinated with really their view of the world and I as I you know they say once you've lost everything you're free to explore anything and, and that's really where this started and I had found um, just new life in this exploration of the arts and I didn't I wasn't making any money at it it didn't um, you know provide me financial security but it provided me a sense a flicker of of hope and light again that gave me a reason to get out of bed in the morning which was uh, so necessary and so much what I needed and there really uh, Dave there, there was there's so many unhealthy, Uh, choices I could have made uh, to numb the pain that I was feeling. And I, I really have great empathy for others who have experienced pain or hardship and have turned to unhealthy addictions because I get it. And fortunately, I didn't. And I found new life through art. And as I began to explore that, that began to explode and I couldn't get enough. And I almost became intoxicated with this idea of studying the masters, studying the psychology behind art, and then studying the the techniques and the mastery on how to paint, how to see, how to sculpt, how to write. And I really approached it from a sense of unbridled curiosity and fascination, which I think taught me faster than any sort of formal art training would have because I was so thirsty and hungry to learn more is this all happened post age 30. Up to that point, I was a very efficient, operationally efficient student and operationally efficient, conservative, pragmatic uh, entrepreneur. And uh, once that came to a screeching, uncomfortable halt, I explored a new route, which ended up being the the arts. And that's really where that started and where that new brand uh, evolved from. I think J.K. Rowling also said that, uh, you know, rock bottom is a great place to start building a new foundation. And that's honestly, truly what, what happened to me and what was my experience. This wasn't, um, you know, research and development in a scientific lab. This was real life experience that I went through, uh, this process of being a very analytical, practical, rational business thinker, into morphing into kind of uh, an imaginative, innovative, creative, explorative artist And that's where the the Banksy's of the world fascinated me more than, even though I still love Picasso and Michelangelo and, you know, the Mozarts, Renoirs, Beethovens, Bob Dylan's, it's the Banksy's of the world that really captured my fascination the most.
1: Hmm. And, and this isn't like a Mr. Brainwash thing where this whole thing is a con and you're just trying to make a ton of money, which no, I'm kidding. If you if you have no idea what we're talking about, go see the movie Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's on um, it's on Netflix. It's on all those other ones. It's a, it's a hilarious sort of take um, on this world. This is a real sort of um, trying to capture that same idea. And as we said earlier, art is a means to provoke thought. Right, which is really um, an, an amazing turnaround from being that sort of a a student, Mister Disciplined, etc. On the other hand, I think that really sets the tone for uh, your new book. We're sort of here on the occasion of that. I know, I know, I'm being bad radio host, and I haven't even mentioned the name of the title yet. The title is "The Spark and the Grind." And if I think about the the history, the life history that you just unpacked lines up with a lot of the research that I unpacked in in Mists of Creativity, which is while we have this misunderstanding that these things are binary, that there is being the educated, disciplined, intellectual, academic person, or being the freewheeling, free-thinking, creative, ex- explorational person, you've just described to me, in reality, what I heard was you taking that same discipline process that you learned as a student and applying it to the arts and in, and being able to sort of... Uh, learn a whole lot more a lot quicker because of that process, which epitomizes this idea of the spark and the grind. Yeah, okay, there's a creative element too, but there's also a lot of discipline involved for anyone, for any artist who also manages to provoke thought on a wide scale.
0: The, the beauty of where I'm approaching this now in my career is I would this would not have been possible if I would not have had that very structured analytical approach in the beginning. And we need that this isn't creativity just for the sake of creativity and whimsical ideas and adventure and exploration without consequences. We need structure. We need discipline. We need those academics. I needed that academic, uh, background by which to be able to understand creativity in the ca- in the capacity that I understand it now. So this isn't a woe is me and oh, we need to just change our entire educational system and we all need to uh, embrace creativity because we absolutely categorically need reading, writing, arithmetic. We need to understand discipline and structure and authority by which to be able to circle around it, be able to see it from different angles and new angles. And that's the largest take home from my book is that paradox that structure creates freedom, that discipline is what enables creativity and that creativity without discipline is like a river without banks. It will just run without a focal point, without an end goal in mind. And we've got to create not only that painted picture, that vision, that passion, that curiosity for uh, unlocking the future, but we also need to build actionable substance and steps and discipline by which to be able to get there and also have the agility by which to be able to navigate bumps in the road and to face resistance and to work through it. And that takes tremendous discipline. And actually, it it is far easier for me to teach an analytical business professional how to be intuitive or creative than it is for me to teach an emotional, intuitive artist how to be structured or disciplined. And so that's really where the the kind of concept for this book came is it's not either or but it's yes and they work as a yin and yang function together
1: yeah and it's not just an individual like your own experiences we see the same thing when we start working with businesses and oh we change the c word to the i word and we call it innovation but it's the same thing there's all sorts of myths and and misconceptions and this idea that oh if we can just get freewheeling and and creative we just have like free cereal bars and take your animal to work day if we just look like google or pixar or ideo or whatever that'll that'll solve the whole thing and what what i think a lot of people don't realize is those firms are so innovative not because of the the quirkiness yeah that's a part of it but also because of the discipline with which they put through to bring that quirkiness into a tangible a, a scalable idea
0: one of the most common questions I get when I, when I open to Q&A, which is, is very rarely because questions tend to be so
1: random and, and uh, not always appropriate to well, the actual context they, of the keynote. They, they tend to be statements that tone up at the end, so it sounds like a question. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But one, one of them usually is, hey, what are some examples of companies you've worked with, with creative ideas that they've implemented that have worked? And the reason that I'm hesitant to give specific examples, even though I've got hundreds of them, is because that's what worked yesterday. And once I give an example of what Google does, of what Uber does, of what Airbnb has done, of what these particular credit unions or manufacturing plants have done, then we we try and plug our ideology into that old formula, but consumer behavior changes daily. And so what I would rather do rather than give a man a fish, I want to teach them how to fish. I don't want to give them example of what another company has already done because that's probably already outdated. What I want to do is teach them how to think, how to adapt, how to be uh, mentally agile, to be able to adjust to the uncertainties that they have not yet Explored, so it's really an expanding of consciousness and expanding of uh, emotional intelligence, by which to be able to unlock problems that haven't yet been invented.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I totally hear you. One of the um, one of the things you explore in the book, you you call it immerse, but it's this idea that, uh, and I think organizations are allergic to this idea, but that we sh- we, we need to be seeking out things that, that make us uncomfortable, um, things that we, we don't have any expertise in, things that we have sort of permission to be um, a, a novice in. And I feel like that's so counter to most organizational cultures. It makes it hard to almost answer the question of like, when. what are examples of organizations that where it's outside of the ones everybody knows about where it's worked? Because kind of all of those other organizations, you don't you don't get promoted for saying you don't know the answer, right? You get promoted for having all the answers, even if you have the wrong questions.
0: Right. Uh, we were promoted for getting 20 out of 20 on our spelling test, getting 100% on our math test, and uh, our children migrate towards that which they're affirmed for. When they're affirmed for doing well in these hard, linear subjects, they will move that direction. If they're not rewarded for uh, philosophical thinking, complex problem solving, the arts, they're not going to go that direction in the same way in, in business. And really, growth and comfort cannot coexist. So we've got to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. We've got to create cultures and environments that reward those little mini bursts of creativity and those... Opportunities where we might fail. And, and failure is not the the opposite of success, but rather it's part of success. And it's the culture inside that organization that says, you know, that's a great idea, let's keep going, let's continue funding that and pushing it, or hey, you know, that was a cool thought, that's not gonna work, and here's why, let's try others. But not shaming failure, but rather encouraging it as an opportunity to self-correct or to auto adjust. And that's where, you know, it really comes down to the hiring of the individuals that we bring in, uh, that they aren't linear formulaic robots, but they are free thinkers who have the, the company's best, uh, best ideas in mind that we that we're all unified in a clarity, painted picture for the future. And so we're going to take different routes by which to be able to get there. It's not one leader dictating from a a spot of tyranny exactly what the best practice is that's going to get there. It's going to be a collection of diverse, uh, opportunistic, creative thinkers that are all going to work towards that end goal, maybe taking different paths to get there.
1: Hmm. Now, now, here's where it gets a little hard, though. So when a manager delivers all the answers, when a manager says the one best way, the, the best practices for doing things, it's, it's incredibly easy to build systems and to continue to sort of rehearse those systems. When you, when you sort of don't know the answer, how do you commit to that same level of practice and process of uh, mysteriousness? Um, I mean, like like you said, we explore this a little bit in in the midst of creativity, but I'd love to get your take um, on it um, because you're the one fielding those statements that sound at the end like questions.
0: Anyone who's uh, studied improv, I I think, or knows much about improv is where I would say is a great example where it's uh, one of the common uh, exercises they use is yes and. So you throw out an idea and rather than say no, but, and take it a different direction, say yes, and, and you add to it. And so I think that is what uh, exploring creativity is going to be like in a corporate setting is to be able to improv, to freestyle, to move off of ideas, connect ideas, uh, enhance ideas, grow ideas, as opposed to squelch ideas or fire hose ideas or uh, fire people for having ideas. It is It is a unified mission towards a common goal, and the goal in improv is to come up with something new and clever and breakthrough and funny that could not have been attained by just one individual delivering a soliloquy, and so that's that's one of the beauties, I think, of business is improv, and if I could uh, give one exercise that every business should uh, participate in, every sales professional, every leader, it would be this experience of improv, not because... Improv's funny and you're going to laugh but because there's an expanding of the mind and an inclusiveness of ideas that I think is The bedrock to how we're going to explore uncharted waters
1: going forward Hmm. I think that's I, I think that's I totally agree. I think that's, um, there's, a, there's a couple different, what's interesting, there's a couple different improv companies that are starting to specialize in that idea. Um, what's also interesting to me, I mean, I kind of thought you were going to say to, you know, break out the cans spray paint and, and get started because, <laughs> because um, I mean, that in and of itself is an element of improv. I kind of wanted to ask, I want to pivot a little bit and wanted to ask more about, you know, you demonstrate the importance of getting these concepts in, in a very different format right? So, uh, you, you know, you're not second city, although improv is hugely important. You're actually creating a lot of times when you're working with companies and and on stage or running trainings, you're sort of delivering content and also creating these beautiful works of art at the same time. How did you sort of stumble into that?
0: The reason I did is because uh, I'm actually not a big fan of keynote speakers. I've seen a lot of them and it's a lot of, uh, talking and lecturing and kind of a delivery system of content with PowerPoint slides and actionable takeaways. And as much as I agree that that, that is a form of teaching, what really ignites me is live music, live theater, uh, live entertainment experiences. So in my head, as I was putting this together, I came from a very structured background as how could I deliver actionable takeaways actual substance, but do it in a fascinating, entertaining way where the audience almost felt like they were participating in a rock concert. And so I create paintings to live music choreographed to videos in three minutes. That's just a hook to get their attention. And then I talk about this process of creativity, how I as an artist approach this uh, idea of creating a piece of art a strategy, a blueprint that even has the potential to to differentiate from all the other great, great artwork out on the the marketplace, but also for the audiences that I'm speaking to, how they also have that exact same ability to tap into new ways of thinking, innovation, creativity, curiosity, this, this beginner's mind, to be able to transcend the commoditization of what oftentimes business becomes Look for ways to, to visibly differentiate from the competition. And as a good friend of mine, Joe Calloway, says, you know, how to become a category of, of one. And the only way that you do that is to be able to break free from this sea of sameness, to break free from old school academic narcissistic literalism of how we view best practices in business. Important, we need to understand them. But not for them to be absolutes and to be able to hold those as uh, rules uh, or hold them as, yeah, hold them as rules, but be able to work in and around them and to be able to return to that structure of rules when we need to, but also to be able to expand outside of them when there's opportunities for, uh, for growth or innovation.
1: Okay. You rolled off that old school academic narcissism thing so uh, beautifully and timed that that's got to be in the presentation often. That's not the first time you've said that. It's a great phrase. I love it. And and I'm hesitant. I I periodically will use that
0: because it's kind of a strong statement and I'm hesitant to use it because it's kind of a finger pointing, finger wagging. But what it is, it's a frustration for me on how we define ourselves. And there is once we learn a word like risk, um, then everything that we associate around ourselves, our complete ideology is centered around around risk mitigation. And we forget to look at the risk associated with being too structured along the way. When we look at the words like failure, how we define failure, how we define success, how we define love, how we define suffering, how we define Uh, growth. There's a lot of things that we have built into our operating system that either have no business being there in the first place in such a short-sighted, myopic term, or that we just need to look for ways to expand them because there is so much disruption now with social, mobile, and cloud technologies. We're coming into artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, virtual reality, things that really our mind our learned mind, our scholastic mind are not prepared for. And if we hang on to those with what I call narcissistic literalism, with a sense of nostalgia uh, that our hard, hard ass work that we did in school isn't Worth as much as it used to be, we need to be able to let go of that and latch on to something new, onto this new changing trends in consumer behavior and realize that mental dexterity and agility and emotional intelligence, uh, it's the new holy grail for what uh, individuals and organizations should be striving for.
1: Hmm. So, you know, an interesting thing, this kind of circles back to something you said earlier with the idea that what you affirm you get more of and that um, not to pick on them, but that on our current sort of education system isn't teaching that mental dexterity. It's not teaching um, these things. It's still sort of affirming that kind of you are as valuable as you can memorize concepts and spit them back to me. The the reason I I bring this one up again is that I'm really curious to get your take uh, from a little bit different issue than from a manager, but in in a family situation, you have three sons, which I mean, I'm sure you've started thinking about this. What do we probably can't overhaul the education system in our lifetime? What do you do to try and make sure to affirm the skills that that we just talked about that are going to be more valuable moving forward?
0: Sure, that's going to fall on the uh, the onus is going to be on the parents because our school system is not going to change; it's just not in place. And so, where I used to be, uh, kind of the the biggest angry voice against you know we need to change the educational system. Um, When I did that, I found that we're actually losing our most valuable resource. The people who are being caught in the crosshairs are the teachers and the teachers are the ones who are loving on the kids. They're nurturing kids. They they became teachers because they wanted to grow young minds into becoming the best possible version that they could be. And so to go back and to, not disparage teachers but to encourage them but as a parent and my my boys are actually uh 21 19 and 17 now oh so it's Uh, not what
1: are you doing it's what did you do
0: what did i do exactly and and that was um ignite fascination and curiosity in them outside of the classroom. So I realized school is going to be school. They're going to teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic. And frankly, that doesn't interest me all that much. As their dad, I don't want to teach them how to read. I don't want to teach them how to do math. In fact, a lot of the math that they did, I can't even do anymore. Uh, What I wanted to do was ignite their fascination beyond the four walls of the classroom. I wanted to bring culture alive to them, history alive to them, travel with them, teach them about the arts, teach them about empathy, teach them about love, teach them about suffering, uh, and then work with them on their own artistic talents. Uh, You know, they ended up, my boys ended up being singer and songwriters. Uh, They play musical instruments, and uh, they they also do, you know, a, a, a lot of Painting and exploring and photography and filmmaking every one of those skills is all about uh, the philosophy of problem solving and it's allowed them to become very agile and very uh, adroit in being able to handle a lot of the challenges that they're experiencing in college right now
1: hmm oh, I think that's so I mean I think that's so interesting and I should tell you this I'm coming at it from the other end so my boys are, are young one of them just started in school every day the other's in kind of like you know, we call it school, but it's really daycare. Um, and so, so thinking through those ideas of what do you, what do you have to do? The irony is, I heard a lot of what you just said that also works. If you are, you might not be. We can't overhaul the education system. We can't. Most of us can't overhaul these sort of large organizations. We can still kind of think about our family unit, in this case, our team that we've been entrusted with, not necessarily you know, our family. But we can still kind of do that same thing, that inspire um, that curiosity beyond just the, the routine things that they've been hired to do. But um, you know, h- how do we inspire those conversations? How do we let them immerse themselves in uncertainty? All of the things that we've been talking about can be done on a managerial level with your kind of team of people, treating them just the same way you would treating a family, trying to make sure you're not squelching the creativity of your children.
0: Yes, and not uh, for me. It was it was the empathy of entering their world, not shaming them for their you know uh, desire to play Xbox or their desire to be on Snapchat or their desire uh, to do a lot of these things. But it was rather entering their world and how can I make education and learning uh, more fascinating than a game of FIFA. Or uh, watching Game of Thrones, or uh, texting buddies on you know Snapchat or Twitter. How can I uh, you know invite them into making films? How can I invite them into using their platforms, their social media, and enhance them at a new level so that they understand uh, the digitization, the communication skills, the fact that you know they're still there. My mom and dad. They're not on social media, so my boys can't communicate them with them through Snapchat or texting or Twitter or YouTube. They still need to learn to be able to talk with them on the phone and face-to-face. They need to know those skills. I want them to know those skills, but I also want to learn their language of Snapchat. I want to be able to communicate with not only them, but their friends, and it's an entirely different world. Once I stepped into it with a sense of curiosity as opposed to a sense of this is a waste of time. I realized entirely different why it's fascinating to them and why something even sim- as simple as Snapchat, it most closely mimics the way our kids actually communicate. That uh, you know, phone technology that we used doesn't appeal to them as much as this idea of video images or being authentic or being silly and uh, being able to step into authenticity as opposed to formality uh, was really important for me to learn how to communicate with millennials and youngers.
1: Hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And and we could spend like a huge amount of time to uh, to unpack the Millennials comment. That's like a whole other podcast episode. Let's not go down that route. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, suffice it to say, if you haven't figured it out yet... No matter how old you are, you've got things you need to learn from the millennials. That's, that's the gist of, of that. I want to pivot a bit. The book, again, is um, The Spark and the Grind, Ignite the Power of Disciplined Creativity. We've sort of meandered through the book in various places. We didn't give away the store, though. So if you are still salivating and thinking, hmm, how do I do more of this? How do I apply it, et cetera, Pick up a copy of that. In, in the time we have left, though, Eric, I'd love to switch a bit from the book and talk a little bit more about you and ask you some questions that we ask all of our guests. Sure thing. Lay on me. So the first would be, what's the best advice you've ever received? Came from Gandhi.
0: Be the change you want to see in the world. And so even though I knew that as an intellectual quote, I didn't fully understand that until probably my 40s in uh, even going through this uh, really tumultuous, divisive, toxic, political environment that we've been enveloped in is it there's no value in negativity and for me if I want to see change I need to be the change that I want to see in the world and so even though it originated with Gandhi I'm going to give credit to my wife who has breathed fresh life back into me that if I'm truly going to make an impact and be a man of consequence then it starts with the guy in the mirror and I need to be the change that I want to see in the world.
1: Hmm. So I'm curious to ask you this question. You've got a great quote. I saw somewhere out there either on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere about, um, waking up every day to a blank canvas, right. And having to create something out of it. And it, this is a question we ask all of our guests, but I'm intrigued to hear your answer. What does an ideal work day look like for you?
0: Uh, it's actually very, uh, structured. I, I start my day with a bottle of water, Uh, with hydration then I go straight to a double espresso which is not done to wake me up but rather I share that time with my wife that's where we uh, dialogue that's where it's almost for me it's the taste of success it's the taste of new thoughts it's the taste of sharing and starting the day and then we'll go into our routine I'll often go into the studio and I'll start to paint I'll start to write. I'll start to research. Maybe I'll start doing my conference calls. Uh, I perform uh, two to three times a, a week on the on the road. So much of this is actually done on airplanes, as as you know very well. But fortunately, given the nature of my job, I can. Uh, go through that process of meditation and expanding consciousness, and write, specifically writing, less so painting. But I will cr- I will create concepts for future paintings while on airplanes. And then I keep notes after notes, after notes, after notes, not because I'm going to execute them right away, but because I will re-explore them. And so that's really what my day looks like. Uh, From a standpoint of performing, I go through a very specific routine, almost like an athlete uh, prepares to take the field. I go through another process of, you know, rehearsing and then quieting my mind, uh, going through this process of stretching meditation and then working up towards when the curtains part. And I actually will take the stage.
1: Hmm. What are you reading right now?
0: <laughs> the soul of money. Uh, by Lynn Twist. It's, it's a reread of mine. It is one of the things that uh, most radically changed my life at the age of 30 when I went, uh, when, I, when I had nothing and realized uh, that my relationship with money was very unhealthy. And this book is a re-reminder on that money is just simply an energy. And it can be, it's not good or bad, but how my relationship is with it can be both very good and very bad, regardless if I have a lot of it or none of it. But how I view and interact with money dictates how I live my life. So it's important that I keep it in perspective.
1: Hmm. What do you believe that you, you think most people don't?
0: I'm, I'm a huge fan of change your physiology, change your mindset. So I use a number of different biohacks. I believe, even though it's not scientifically proven, that if I do a polar plunge, an ice bath, if I do cryotherapy and freeze my body, shock my body, that it changes my mindset. It breaks me out of creative ruts. And so even though it's not scientifically proven, I will do that before it's, it's uh, before I go write, before I go paint, I will go into a cryotherapy chamber for three minutes, endure extreme hardship of coldship, and then, uh, experience that zen that flushing of blood returning to my system and this expansive uh mind altering uh, refining of my consciousness by which to be able to write so again change my physiology change my mindset
1: Hmm. so our our final question i'm really curious to get your take on the title of the show is radio free leader in your view what makes someone a leader
0: being authentic being empathetic the ability to uh, ignite other individuals and to help them become the very best version of themselves. And so a leader breathes life into those around them, not through formulas, but through empathy and through understanding what lights them up. Because once they're uh, autotelic, Or self-driven, or ignited from the inside, all the leader has to do is step out of the way and help guide and uh, uh, shape them going forward, which is what I do as a parent. I don't parent my boys as a helicopter, saying these are dos and don'ts. I'm uh, monitoring them from a thirty-thousand-foot level. I'm keeping them out of peril so that they don't make life-altering poor decisions, but I also allow them to make small micro mistakes along the way so that they learn to auto adjust themselves, not auto adjust or not adjust simply based on my strict
1: parenting. Hmm. I love it. I love it. And again, with the idea that there is so much you can learn from being a parent and trying to buck the education system to increase people's creativity about what you can learn as a leader to try and buck the bureaucratic system of your organization to make your people more creative. If you want more, there is so much more to explore in the spark and the grind. And I encourage you to, I mean, if you don't are, if you're not already familiar with this work, type his name to Google, like his Facebook page, watch his some of his speeches. The, the What he does on stage is amazing. It's not um, your average keynote. It actually makes average keynoters like me super mad. No, I'm kidding. kidding. Um, But it's an amazing, unique um, gift that he gives to the world. So I highly encourage you to check it out. And hopefully sometime you can see him on stage as well. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader.
0: David, it is such an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for stone-cold pimping for my book, my brand, having this discussion. I'm so down with your book, The Myths of Creativity, and how many similarities you and I share, and I'm just very grateful for this time. And thank you. If you're one of the listeners who's hung through this whole thing and listened to the very end, thank you very much. I I sincerely and deeply uh, am appreciative.